Welcome to the Paleo View. I'm Stacy Toth of PaleoParents.com. You might also know me as the broth lady or the inventor of the hashtag more vegetables than a vegetarian. I'm the co-author of several paleo cookbooks, including Eat Like a Dinosaur, Beyond Bacon, Real Life Paleo. I like to talk about health at any size and self-love and personal acceptance. Specifically, I have a love for lifting heavy things. If you're interested in finding more out about that, you can also find me on Strong Woman Radio. And I'm Dr. Sarah Valentine of thepaleomom.com. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of The Paleo Approach and The Paleo Approach Cookbook. I'm passionate about nutrient density and the intersection of diet and lifestyle with health, which really means I just love talking about science. News and views, where Sarah and I catch up and you get to listen to our gossip. I was going to say hello in Italian, <laughs> and then I realized, I know, I know it, I know it, I gotta know it. I can tell you how to say, I have an allergy to wheat, tomatoes, and corn. Do you want me to tell you how to say that? Yes. Okay, I have to go, oh, no, I can't tell you right now, my paper's upstairs. Right, I, I so printed it I and put it in my purse. Con tutti il cuore, bene trovato. Which means, with all my heart, I'm happy we met. Danke. <laughs> That's German. I'm going to the wrong country. <laughs> um, oh, and this is why Europeans hate America. Oh, I know. I, there was a joke. I know that it's not. Anyway, okay. Oh, okay. Um, I do want to say that I totally was smart and, like, no nothing, no planning. Well, I won't. I won't say no planning, like, you know, I bought a new bathing suit and stuff, but I didn't learn a language or like do any of that kind of stuff to go, except I really learned, I like put an app on my phone and pre looked up and printed out how to say, um, I have an allergy, please no wheat, corn, or tomatoes in three different languages. <laughs> and I'm hoping. Uh, to survive. I'm sure I'll be fine. I'm sure you'll be fine. I've, um, I've heard that Italy is the most gluten-free friendly country in the world because of the high rate of celiac there. So I'll be curious to see how that goes. I will be really excited to have you report back on your travels. Um, it's really interesting because this is like totally aside and not relevant to our topic today, but um, you hear these stories of of people who travel um, and have far fewer sensitivities than they do in their home. And part of it may be, you know, the, the, just how differently foods are made, um, how differently they're grown, right? Like differences in strains of wheat, things like that. Um, I think that stress and sleep have a huge, huge input here because, um, we know that they, help control how the immune system is reacting to things. And when you're on vacation, typically you're sleeping in and you're having a lot of fun and you're low stress. So um, either way, either way, even if it's placebo effect, don't underrate placebo effect. 
that's an amazing effect. I, I remember, I think I've told this story before, when I went on the low-carb cruise years ago, I accidentally forgot all my digestive enzymes. Hmm. And the very first day, I freaked out because I realized that all I had was the pills that I kept, like, daily in my purse that were only, like, one to two days worth and not, you know, enough to last me a week. And I went around to everyone begging for, you know, and did anybody who was also on the low-carb cruise happen to have, you know, bile and all these kinds of things? Um and nobody had any, and I was like, okay, well, we'll just see what happens. And it was it was not a placebo effect <laughs> because <laughs> I was expecting bad things, and um, totally my digestion was better, you know, kind of mid to halfway through the cruise once I started to relax and whatever um, than it was kind of at home with digestive enzymes. So um, that said, I don't know that any amount of relaxing is going to – make eating, you know, fresh tomatoes and wheat in Rome palatable for me. So I'm just going to avoid that whole thing. I mean, I generally, um, my reactions are so severe. I don't think that I would intentionally risk it. Yeah. For, um, that's for yeah. me as I'm like, it's not, to me, it's not worth what could happen because I need to be able to walk and enjoy my vacation so i need to be able to leave the bathroom yeah that's the thing because <sighs> you know european bathrooms are tiny yeah um well i uh i hope you have an amazing trip you're actually when this podcast airs when this episode airs you're on the trip like people can go to your instagram feed and see what you're doing yeah the, the thing is is that i'm actually unplugging and that I'm not getting Wi-Fi. I'm not getting like Wi-Fi or internet on the cruise ship. I will only have Wi-Fi that is publicly available when we land in cities in Europe. So I have intentionally. So they made this can choice. go to your Instagram and see three whole photos. So exactly. Far. Exactly. <laughs> and see what you did in the airports in Europe. Yeah, but I'm like, I'm, I'm making it clear to everyone that I'm going someplace and and like. I have never had this kind of break from work either. Like we had to, you know, come up with a whole plan for me to be unavailable for two whole weeks. So um, it's uh, it's it's going to be really good for me. I'm looking forward to it, and and it's going to be really good for all the people who normally depend on you, <laughs> right? Yeah, a little bit like cut the cord. Come on, come on, guys. Like let's let's, let's hope that that's how it works out. I will miss the kids, but um, yeah. I wasn't talking about them. I was like talking yeah. about your. Your yes, my yes, my coworkers. <laughs> I'm gonna miss Matt and the kids a lot because they're not coming. Um, they're not with me actively, I should say, in this tense. Um, but <laughs> I am like really looking forward to spending quality time with my sisters, whom I've never really had an opportunity to spend a lot of quality time with, especially now that we're adults, um, because we were raised in different houses. And then my um, celebrating—it's a like belated birthday gift for my dad. So, anyway completely off topic but uh yes i will absolutely do kind of a food recap i'll be taking photos and even if they don't get posted i'll share them you know when i can or whatever so there might be like nothing oh, for a day and then they'll just be like 10 48 photos <laughs> exactly. here's all the things i ate over the last two weeks exactly yeah. awesome Um, well, today um, on this episode, we're continuing our talk of uh, sort of 
weight loss and obesity research and um, some of the the new science that um, either gives us more insight or maybe helps direct better choices. And this being, um, I think, a topic that's really near and dear to both of our hearts is people who, you know, profound weight loss is a is a major feature of our own health journeys and certainly not the only thing that we uh, gained from paleo. And I would actually go so far as to say for me, um, you know, weight loss maintenance is probably the like happy byproduct of paleo. It, um, you know, I really came to paleo more from a um, desire to uh, mitigate disease. And, and while, you know, losing 120 pounds was certainly part of my entire journey to and with paleo, um, it's, it, paleo for me has always been about, um, getting healthy to get thin, not getting thin to get healthy. And if I had to choose between those two things, if I can't have them simultaneously, health wins every single time. And that's what I really, um, am very passionate about paleo because that's what, um, I have experienced in my own health journey and, uh, and something that I, you know, would like other people to be able to experience as well. Um, so today we're talking about something that I think is really, really fascinating and does not get enough airtime. It is something called the obesity paradox. Have you ever heard of this? Only from you. Ha ha. I said, I want to talk about, I prefer to talk about weight loss stuff. Let's talk about the obesity paradox. And you were like, sure. <laughs> That's good, Sarah. As, as, as our friendship often goes, once you start down the scientific path, I'm like, huh, look at that bird. <laughs> Squirrel. Um, so, uh, no, so this is actually something that's really interesting. And, and one of the reasons why I thought we should really cover it on the show is because we do get a lot of questions from people who, uh, have experienced, uh, weight loss with paleo and then they get stuck and they hit that plateau and they still want to lose 10 or 20 or 30 more pounds. And no matter what they do, they just can't. And this is where getting healthy to get thin instead of getting thin to get healthy really becomes like a, a really core idea because research is starting to show that uh, having that extra 20 or 30 pounds actually may make you healthier and that the healthiest place to be is overweight, not obese, but overweight. And so what this comes from is actually was really interesting. So in the history of this medical research, the first few papers that found this couldn't even get published because there was so much skepticism as to the factual basis behind those results. Um, and then it just got to be so like such big rigorous studies that you just couldn't ignore it as a thing anymore. So it comes from a, quite a large collection of research now, um, some looking at um, cardiovascular disease, heart disease, kidney disease, sort of individual um, conditions, and then some looking at something called all-cause mortality. So all-cause mortality is a really interesting statistical device in the literature. You can look at these big populations and basically just look at how many people died in a period of time. And then you can, whatever else you can measure about these populations, things like who smoked, who didn't, um, you know, who ate five or more servings of vegetables a day, who didn't, um, you know, who was female, who was male, what those types of, those types of things. You can look at the, at what you know about this population and you can go, Hey, here's this really, really strong t statistical significance. There might be an effect. And then you go, okay, now it's time to try to understand the mechanism. So 
this is where you know people's you know their favorite phrase correlation does not equal causation that phrase to me is a little bit like fingernails on a chalkboard um but it is you start with a correlative study and that gives you the directions for the mechanistic study so you're going to start with a correlation go hey look you know when this is high this is high or when this is low this is high like however however that correlation works there might be something here and then you you dive you dive in into more detail and you try to understand how they're related once you can understand how they're related then you can start to make some some conclusions about whatever that thing is and that's sort of the progress of, of that science makes um and it's why you can't just dismiss a correlative study you just have to look at it under the lens of this is an indicator that there may be something there and you have to pair it with the mechanisms and pair it with the deeper understanding in order to make conclusions. So, um, so where the obesity paradox came from was this observation that um, people who were had a, had a BMI of 25 to 30, so it's classified as overweight, so between 18 and a half and 25 is considered normal weight, um, below 18.5 is considered underweight, between 25 and 30 is considered overweight, and above 30 is considered obese. So there was this observation that people between 25 and 30 had the lowest rate of all-cause mortality. So you follow these people for a period of time, and the fewest number of people who are over, in that group that are overweight die, or percentage of, of people die. So, um, so you go, aha, that's really interesting, because all-cause mortality is this great general indicator of not just health, but longevity, because you're looking at people who die from disease, who um, who die from accident, um, which, you know, even an accident can often get tied in with uh, either things like high risk lifestyle or um, or disease. I mean, not all the time. Sometimes it's just, uh, you know, chance and, and that's just super unfortunate. Um, but uh, but you the accidents due to chance tend not to change in different um, populations, um, whereas death due to disease does. But it also gives you an indicator of longevity. So you can actually say that the lower all cause mortality is, the longer lifespan is. So um, people who are, and this is you know, typically something like 30 pounds overweight is sort of in this range. Um, this BMI between 25 and 30 have the lowest rate of all cause mortality. So then as people dove into this research in more detail, they found that really interestingly, um, even though if you look at what's called grade one obesity, so that's obesity. Can I just yeah. chime in for a minute to say like the irony in us calling it overweight if they have optimal right. health? And I'm using quotation marks when I say that because I'm like, how are you defining the ideal weight then? Like, where is that coming from? You're hmm. just literally inventing what you think is aesthetically pleasing. I'm sorry. And just tangent. I owed you one was, from the last episode. Was- that's true, but I was just going to say, like, that was the take-home message in about 15 minutes. Sorry, I just, I had to, okay. I just couldn't, I just can't even. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to reiterate that point. Okay. Later, because I think that's, that's the take-home right there. I'll, I'll, um, I'm sure I'll be able to get there. So, uh, so as studies delved into this, uh, ver- what people considered a very surprising result, they found something interesting. So. Obese people have a higher risk of a lot of different diseases. So, um, and cardiovascular disease being one in which there's really large studies to look at the statistics of and, and how that's working. And there's a fairly good understanding of 
why mechanistically, why somebody who's obese would have a higher risk of cardiovascular disease. So what was what's really interesting though is that obese people, once they have cardiovascular disease, and this actually this research has eventually expanded to many chronic illnesses, higher risk of developing the chronic illness. Once you have the chronic illness, higher chance of surviving it, which is fascinating. And I read one researcher who actually made the analogy, which I thought was a little bit strange, of um, being obese, like getting in with a bad crowd and uh, getting in with some some people who are like into some bad stuff. And then you guys all get busted and sent to jail. But then you're like bad people friends protect you from like the other prisoners in the jail from doing bad stuff to you. So it was like oh, I, I thought that was a really – was a really random analogy, uh, but it stuck in my brain clearly enough to share it uh, again. So um, maybe that'll stuck in other people's brains. But um, so there's this there's this two sides to this. One is that um, being overweight or obese increases your survival from chronic illness, even though it increases your chronic illness rate. And that being overweight is this like magic magic place where um, there's much lower all-cause mortality. Um, being grade one obesity, so that's a BMI of 30 to 35, is the same as being normal weight. And then being underweight and being grade two or grade three obesity, so having a, a BMI greater than 35 or under 18.5, are the highest risks, the highest all-cause mortality rates. So you actually show this like U-shaped curve, and of course we're really used to this in biology, this U-shaped curve where there's this like sweet spot, right? This like happy medium of everything. But it turns out that um, where we have the longest lifespans on average and uh, the lowest disease risks on average is a slightly overweight. Um, once you get into obese, obese, like then there's some pros and cons and the cons really outweigh the pros, but also underweight um, has some really high, you know, high risks of, of health problems as well. So there's this tw like a BMI of 25 to 30. So that's considered, um, to me, I, I don't like the BMI. I'm sure you're with me on that one about the limitations of BMI. Unfortunately, that's Olympic how athletes are morbidly obese. Something tells me that the chart doesn't work. Would you like to expand on that slightly? <laughs> sure. So uh, even doc, I mean, even my doctors have said to me, like, the, the BMI thing, like they know that it doesn't make sense for a lot of people because all it does is it calculates basically your height and your weight and puts you on a chart and says how you are. And obviously, if you are a 250 pound athletic swimmer who has body fat of 10%, that's an entirely different 250 pounds of someone who, you know, has a lot, a, a lot less muscle mass and who is inactive and whose weight is mostly fat or adipose tissue, right? So there is no discernation between the two um, in the chart. So a lot of athletes go in to see their doctor and their BMI or, you know, what they, what, what they have to report, you know, to their health providers or whatever puts them in an obese or, or a morbidly obese category, depending on, you know, what kind of muscle mass they have. So uh, excellent example of the limitations of the BMI. 
Um, the reason why BMI is still used in these big population studies is because it's impractical to go in and measure everybody's body composition. But there are some uh, medical bodies who are trying to redefine obesity based on body fat percentage, which I think makes a whole lot more sense. So they're trying to define the line between overweight and obese as uh, for women, 30% body fat and for men, 25% body fat. So that um, is probably just a, just a good number for people to keep in mind in terms of um, understanding relevance. So, um, you know, I know that um, my BMI is higher than what you would expect for somebody with my body fat percentage. So my body fat percentage puts me in a really great healthy range. My BMI would be make not my doctor, but another doctor raise an eyebrow and go, what's up? I'm like, well, what's up is that I just uh, back squatted 200 pounds a bunch of times this morning. So leave me alone. And then they go, okay. That they don't really, but in my head they do. Um, so um, so that's just, I just kind of want to give that, that sort of relevance because I think we'll probably end up touching a little bit on um, – body composition and um, health at different weights later on. Um, but so what's really interesting is since the acknowledgement of the obesity paradox, there's been a lot of conversation around it. And you would think the conversation would be something like, hey, maybe we should redefine goal weights for people. But no. No, that's not that's not the uh, conversation. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> the conversation that makes sense, is, Sarah. How could this possibly be wrong? So, um, so because it's a correlation, right? So at this, you know, until I, we're going to talk about one scientific study that actually shows starting to show some of the mechanisms, but this is a correlation, and so it's we don't have causation. We don't have actionable information until we can understand a mechanism. So what some people, some researchers have proposed is that. People in uh, obese categories are more likely to be given things like statins. And so then when they develop heart disease, it's the fact that they've been on statins for the last 10 years that's actually helping increase their survival. So there's this idea that people who are overweight or obese might have this higher survival rate in chronic illness because they've already been um, like highlighted as people who need pharmaceutical intervention and it's the fact that they're coming into this on all these pharmaceuticals that's actually providing them the benefit. Um, but there was a recent paper that actually looked at the link between um, or whether, you know, the lifespan aspect. So rather than the health aspect, which I think is, you know, there's other people saying, well, if you're obese, you have a more excessive vasculature and that could actually be protective and that could be what's there's a compensation by having this more extensive vascular system in cardiovascular disease so it's like a uh, I people I also, i'm sure there's fisticuffs is what i'm saying yeah i've also read some information i don't know if it was part of what you read about um having weight on you when you go into your later years hmm. when um you're more prone to lose weight especially muscle mass is beneficial because then you're less likely to you know break a hip because there's nothing there to pad it or to get you know the flu and not survive it like that kind of stuff um is is also what I Yeah so it's interesting because um we on average um 
if you, you know, somebody who doesn't have the eating disorder history that I have, um, but on average, people gain one to two pounds a year in their adult life. Um, and so, you know, like you're talking about 10 to 20 pounds a decade. And so on average, people are entering their later years overweight. Um, and that is actually known to correlate with better health outcomes, improve things like cancer survival. Um, so there's actually a lot of benefits to, um, you know, hitting, hitting senior years, um, a little bit heavier. Um, so that actually has been actually understood for longer than the obesity paradox has been well described. Um, and then of course the question is like, is that why we gain this one to two pounds a year? Is that our body pairing for a healthier, um, old age? Like, is that, is that something that our bodies know is coming? And that's, is there some kind of ticking clock that is controlling that, right? Like, is there, is there something that has heard telomeres are shortening that it's somehow creating the signal that we should eat? And it's really like that one to two pounds a year comes from eating about 20 calories more than you burn per day. Like not noticeable, not, not measurable for most people. Um, but it's, it's an interesting sort of aside to, um, the obesity paradox, which is, you know, we do know that, um, having a little bit more weight it makes us more, I think in many ways, you know, it makes us more robust to, to illness as well. Um, a very personal example was that my six-year-old, this is a few weeks ago now, had, um, pretty intense, what we think was flu, although, um, you know, we never actually had her tested for influenza that ended up, um, turning into pneumonia. And she had a high fever for five days. So like a 102, 101 to 102 fever for five straight days. And my 59 pound six-year-old lost four pounds in that five days. And, uh, which is a fairly substantial percent of her, of her body weight. And that, when you actually understand how fevers work, it's the brown fat burning, brown fat cells, burning fat to produce excess heat is how the body heats up. So you're really burning through a lot of fat to, to heat the body up that much. And, um, and so you can suddenly go like, that was such a great illustration of why having a little bit extra fat store, um, can actually be protective for you because it can help you, you know, historically before there was things like antibiotics or antivirals or IVs, you know, like hospitals to be, to, to be admitted to as interventions for that, you know, fevers killed people, even if they would have otherwise gotten over the disease. And it's because of how rapidly, how, you know, how much strain it is on the body, how rapidly we lose weight in a fever. So having a little bit of extra weight, you know, is, it can be an advantage going into a situation like that. Um, but what this research shows is it can be an advantage going into every situation, um, except maybe competing in the Olympics. So <laughs> just, I mean, I was just thinking about maybe not or the CrossFit games, uh... the CrossFit games. No, those are, those are some pretty lean people. Um, so, uh, there was an interesting study that was done that looked at, um, fat storage and longevity. And it was done in yeast, which is a very, very well established model for understanding uh, genetic factors. And because the genes that control lifespan and the genes that control triglyceride metabolism are conserved, 
uh, across most mammal, uh, animal life forms, so from yeast to humans. Um, you know, while this research clearly, you know, has to go farther up the phylogenetic tree, um, it's it's a um, it's a very good starting point for understanding. Uh, what might be behind the obesity paradox. And what they found is they genetically manipulated these yeast to either um, not be able to burn fat or to preferentially store more fat or to be normal yeast or to be skinny, what's sort of fat yeast and skinny yeast, so to be to burn more fat. And what they actually showed was that uh, the yeast that stored more triglycerides, right, more more fat storage molecules, had longer lifespan, but was um, there what what was really fascinating was there's like other tricks for increasing lifespan. So you've heard in humans, right, like the caloric deficit thing, the uh, fasting days and the starvation, whatever, increasing lifespan, that you can do that in yeast and have the same effect. But when you do that in yeast, you have um, – impact on reproductive health, impact on growth. So there's growth defects and things like that. With the uh, fat storage, you didn't have any of those negative side effects. So you had the increased lifespan with, you know, normal, healthy, robust, able to reproduce yeast. And when you had the skinny yeast, they had a shorter lifespan. Um, And so they were actually able to start to tease apart some of the, the, actual mechanisms here for um, why having increased fat may actually have a genetic effect that is uh, prolonging lifespan. And that might be what's behind the obesity paradox, Um, which is fascinating to start, you know, just be at that cusp of being able to take something that's correlative information and start to tease apart the mechanisms and start to show that, you know, there's probably more to this then uh, those people are on statins, which I said with enough disdain that we should all know how I feel about statins now, right? I'm clear on the topic. <laughs> so, um, so I what I think is fascinating about the obesity paradox is that, um, and and maybe it's too early to start redefining what a healthy goal weight is, but what this body of scientific literature is at least starting to show like the picture that's starting to form is that that 10 to 30 pounds that just won't come off, you know, we've called it on the show before we've called it vanity weight, um, that it's probably a lot better for us to keep that on our bodies and to embrace it. And the, the shift that's probably needed is not a shift to more extreme diets and more strategies for losing weight and and maintaining that weight loss and you know pills that are going to interfere with our leptin signaling and blah 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 to reduce our hunger and our you know fat signaling and all these you know things that are in development by drug companies the thing that we probably need is to redefine what the goal is and um to start looking at um, what are the bodies that are sort of epitomized as the, you know, the, the top of health and, and, and beauty in our society and start looking at those as, well, that's a unhealthily underweight body and start, you know, shifting back to, you know, it wasn't that long ago that 
you know, paintings of, of young, beautiful women were all, you know, they were all very round and robust, probably 10 to 30 pounds overweight women. That was the epitome of, of beauty. Um, and so figuring out how we can shift back to that as a society, I think is, is really important. Stacy, soapbox, please. Well, I already covered this, that earlier about, you know, needing to relook at where we, so from a scientific perspective, having nothing to do with, you know, who thinks what is aesthetically pleasing more than something else. It's that driver comes from doctors and scientists and it's used across, you know, so many different health platforms as goals for people. And so if we're making a goal for someone to be unhealthy, that's completely, not to, not to say necessarily that if you, you know, get to that weight that you really want, that you're necessarily going to be unhealthy, but that if we're pushing people past the point of, you know, where their bodies want to be for optimal health and moving them into a range that reduces their longevity or general health, then that to me seems like we're, you know, intentionally putting people at higher risk, which I thought was what we're supposed to be avoiding (laughs) with the whole idea of like government health. So it wouldn't be the first time that the government has made a mistake. Um, But I think the important thing is for all of us, we all make mistakes. It's very hard for me to do this. Sometimes you have to admit that you have made a mistake and then (laughs) move on to the next thing. And I will say that I personally have seen and I don't know if I'm just more aware of it, but I think in the last year or two, you know, you I look at people like Amy Schumer and um, J-Law and people like that who are coming out and saying, like, I'm going to be good at what I do and it doesn't matter if I have extra weight on. And then there are people who are saying, well, those women are really hot to me. Like, I don't need them to lose weight. I, I was about to say, those are two extremely gorgeous young women. And Jayla, by the way, eats paleo. She has said that she eats like a cave person. Um, she later clarified that it wasn't necessarily like a paleo statement, but we can all just pretend that it is. Right. Um, I'm going to pretend. We, okay. can, we can totally I, pretend. I'm going to just have one thing in common with Jayla is all I'm saying. <laughs> so, I mean, just my my point is that... I think that there's also a general social acceptance coming around. I rem- I remember first hearing about it with Catherine Zeta-Jones was the first, like, I read as a teen the curvy woman making her way onto the big screen. And, you know, I I watched The Voice because that's the kind of person that I am. And Christina Aguilera is not a stick-thin person, right? So I feel like popular culture is becoming more acceptable of this idea of not needing to be waifish in order to be attractive. And that's not to say that you're not attractive if you're a more slim person. It's just to say that we don't need to have like this one set standard of this is the box that you fit into in order to be attractive. Like the box looks different for so many people and it's okay for all of us to look different and to be perceived differently. And the ideal is exactly what you and I have been stating for so very long, which is that we need to focus on health. And so I think it's fascinating that these studies are saying that the ideal weight for health is different than what is currently being prescribed. And like you said, instead of, you know, looking at ways in which they could, you know, validate that or adjust, you know, recommendations or, or, you know, how the mechanisms are. And the reason that I brought up the, the aging and the hip thing and the flu thing is because to me, that's so 
interrelated, right? And one's already accepted. So like, why couldn't you look into how those mechanisms overlap and if they play into one another and how much one causes the other versus is correlated? Like, these are scientific medical things that make so much sense. But instead, we're like, (laughs) no, 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 it's got to be wrong. Just ignore that and keep getting on the elliptical for those last four pounds because that's what's going to save your health. Like, that's it. That's those four pounds. That's going to do it. Don't worry about, you know, getting a balanced diet and amino acid and omega-6 and all of the toxins and, you know, just that doesn't matter. It's those four pounds that's going to make everything fine. There, I gave you your soapbox. It was epic. I'm so happy. <laughs> <laughs> um, plus, you brought in some pop culture, which I really have the inability to do. So it was good. It was good. See you young people. You young people in your pop culture. I'm waving my cane at you. Yep. I, um, I, I don't know that I can really be called a young person anymore, but I'll take it. I watch, I wa- I'm, I'm into popular culture. I will always be into popular culture. <laughs> All I right. Do, I do some things that are popular. I think that we, you totally do things that are popular. You said you were waving your cane at me. I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> I know that you watch Game of Thrones. It's like, true. it's cool. I, it's totally uh, cool. Yeah, I do. And And right now you can feel really good about your life because I am not able to watch Game of Thrones on a boat. (gasps) Yes, I will. Well, probably by the next time we chat, you will have caught up because I'm assuming that you will come home, kiss the boys on the head and then go catch up with them. (laughs) Something like that. pretty much that order. And then and then sleep away the jet lag. Yeah, I know. I know the priorities. I got it. Um, well, um, we are going to be doing, uh, at least one more in this series of, of, um, podcasts. And if the, the research keeps being so exciting, uh, potentially more, but, um, we will be back next week with, uh, some more awesomeness and, uh, an actual post, uh, Mediterranean cruise, Stacy and, um, Uh, Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Paleo View. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping for our favorite paleo products on the sidebars of our individual websites or by donating through PayPal. I did a really dorky dance at the end, and nobody could see it, so it was really good. It was good? Yeah, no, it was good that nobody could see it because it was like, it was like resetting the dorky dance bar. <laughs> there's a bar for the dorky there's, dance. No, no, there's. Are a dorky you doing? Dance are bar. you doing the limbo? Is that what's happening over there? Uh, no, the I yes. <laughs> I, the imagined you, I imagined you. I imagined you doing the the limbo with like you know how people do like the dorky dance where they put their hands in front of their chest and they kind of like push out and arch their back, like the dork dance as you go under a limbo bar. Like that's what I'm envisioning you doing right now. That is not if what I was doing. On, but if that's you were on also... Snapchat, I would snap you the dance that I'm doing and you could tell me if that's what you were doing and it would be fun because you I'm, would be on Snapchat, but you're not. So you can't. I'm too old for Snapchat. I, I did need a tutorial from a college age student. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. 
With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.